We're in Revelation chapter 7, and we're talking about the Great Tribulation. And if you remember from last time, as we've been going through this, we looked at what the, the word tribulation means. And um, we, we, we looked at the broad understanding, tribulation, meaning affliction or per- persecution. And we see how believers kind of experience that right now during the course of our lives. But what we are interested in is the particular period of time called the Great Tribulation, which, as we saw, is a worldwide time of trouble that is going to come upon the earth. And we want to see what the book of Revelation in particular has to say about that. If you remember, in our attempt to understand what's going to happen in the last days prior to the return of Christ, and including the return of Christ and even beyond, the book of Revelation serves as our main template or the main structure of what those events are going to be. Nowhere else in the Bible do we have something so comprehensive as the book of Revelation that takes us through the return of Jesus. And so the book of Revelation should be the starting point for our study or any understanding that we have concerning the end times. And then we can go to other parts, parts of the Old Testament and the New Testament any other parts that uh, speak of, uh, you know, are prophetic in nature, and then we can take those and put them into the structure or the template of the book of Revelation. And so that's what we're attempting to do. Now, as we come to the book of Revelation, we looked up the word tribulation, and it occurs a certain number of times in the book of Revelation. Does anybody remember how many times? How many times? All right, we have five times the word tribulation occurs in the book of Revelation. So we were looking at each one of those, and the last one that we looked at was in Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 17, and this is where we want to pick up from where we left off last time. And if you remember from last time, in Revelation chapter 7, from 9 to 17, we have what is identified as a great tribulation that is worldwide in nature, that encompasses all of um, the, the whole world, the entire um, uh, the entire nation and all the people, the entire world and all the, the nations that are on it. So if you look at verse 9, so this is Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of, and, and here it is, here's our clue that points us to the fact that this tribulation is a worldwide tribulation. Uh, no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory, and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor, and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, what we want to do tonight is pick up in verse 13, and we want to move towards the identification of these people. So we know already that they come from the entire world, all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. They are there before the throne. Verse 13 says, one of the elders, now this is one of the 24 elders, one of the elders, one of the 24 elders, answered, saying to me, to John, who are these arrayed in white robes? And where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, 
These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So that's verses 13 and 14. We have one of the 24 elders. Who are these people from all nations, tongues, peoples, and and, uh, standing before the throne? They are the ones who come out, or uh, if you uh, kind of look at that closely, they come out of, or presumably they die in the Great Tribulation. These are the ones who come out of the Great Tribulation, and that is who they are. They are the martyrs of the Great Tribulation, and they are from every nation all across the world. So this is the answer to who these people are. And notice their, the reference to their salvation. So they are these arrayed in white robes, And that description of these white robes points to the fact that they have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. So we're not surprised by that because where are they with white robes and palm branches in their hands? Where are they? Well, they are before the throne and we've already seen in verse uh, 10 where they cry out this way, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the picture is in heaven, and you have these souls that have come out of the great tribulation from all over the world, and they are clothed in white robes. They are the saved. These people are saved. So we look at some other passages of Scripture that use this idea of white and the white robes and clean clothing to reflect salvation. And one of the verses that we can look at is Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. It says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So in this passage in Isaiah, it's a great passage in Isaiah, and it's right at the beginning, chapter 1. Red stands for the defilement of sin, or the fact of sin is present. But white is represented representative of being purified or cleaned, cleansed from that uh, stain of sin. Another passage of Scripture is found in Zechariah, and I always love this passage. Zechariah chapter 3, I'm only going to read part of it, but um, it says this in verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him, from Joshua. And to him, he said, to Joshua, God said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. So here is Joshua, he is the high priest, his clothing is they're, they're filthy, and that represents his sin. Satan is there, if you look at the account. And uh, he's accusing him, but God says, remove the filthy clothes and give him clean ones. So this, again, represents his forgiveness of sins and his being in a right relationship with God. We can move to... Uh, oh, I didn't read all of them. Here's verse, fi- here's verse 5. Let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. All right, so that's the other Zechariah passage. The next one is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. It says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things 
like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. So, speaking of our salvation, we know that it is the blood of Jesus that was shed that brings salvation to us. And he is pictured as a lamb, which is how he is depicted in the book of Revelation pretty frequently. So, obviously, when we're talking about the lamb, we are talking about Jesus. So going back to verse 10, here is the praise of these souls who have been redeemed and they are wearing their white robes and they're waving the palm branches, which represents their righteousness or the righteousness of God. It's that they cry out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All right, as we move past this, this is the identification of these people. And we find out some other things about them. So uh, verse, uh, the, the rest of verse 14, let me read 14 again. He says, Sir, you know who they are. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So it is the blood of Jesus who cleanses them and makes their robes white. Verse 15 through 17. So this is their reward here. It says, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So what a, what a great picture of the provision or the reward of these believers who are before the throne. They are martyred on the earth, but they are provided for in heaven. And as I was talking with Tina before, this is what we have to look forward to. I mean, as we go through the study, we might not understand all of the details, but some of it is pretty clear. We're going to end up in in his presence, and he's going to wipe away our tears, and he's going to take care of everything. There will be no more sin, no more trouble, no more affliction, none of this. It'll all be taken care of. In verse 15, notice it says, I will, they serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. So it's uh, interesting. Obviously, we think of heaven and we think of going into the presence of God and rightly so. But notice how it says God will dwell with them. And this is kind of an interesting way of putting it. And I think the reason that it puts it this way is because we have to remember that heaven is a place. It is a created place. It is, it is, because it is a place, it is not a place that can contain the entirety of God. There is, a, just, just as when we consider some of the scriptures and how God appeared on this earth, those appearances of God are just representations of, uh, of a part of who he is. If I can put it that way, it's not quite accurate, but... When God reveals himself, he doesn't reveal himself in his totality because he is eternal and he is infinite and we are finite and we are limited and so there is no way where we can see the comprehensive completeness of God. He is infinite and eternal. He will always be infinite and eternal and we will always be limited. Even in heaven, when we are raised in our bodies, we will not be infinite and eternal. We will be created beings like the angels 
And because we are created beings, we will always be limited and finite, and we will worship before a God who will always be infinite and eternal. So we look at uh, some verses in Scripture, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but here's one passage, and this goes back to 1 Kings chapter 8. And this is the passage of Scripture where Solomon is dedicating this great temple that he has just constructed for God. Remember, before Solomon, the people of Israel had a tabernacle, which was a tent. And they um, got the, you know, they constructed it during the time of Moses, and it was uh, all of these curtains and heavy cloths and, um, you know, bars and everything. You could tear it down and build it back up, and that was how it was as they were moving through the wilderness. You know, they went from place to place, and they would tear down the tabernacle, and they would move it, and then they would build it back up, and, and that's what it was. But when Solomon came on the scene, he built a permanent temple, and he built it in Jerusalem. As he's dedicating this temple unto the Lord, he says this, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. So Solomon understood that this temple that he had built on the earth was only representative and that not even the heaven of heavens could contain God. He is eternal and infinite. So, we, uh, we, nevertheless, we see this great thing. God comes to dwell with us. And, and so this is a truth, you know, throughout scriptures. One of, one of the amazing things about God and his presence is that he chooses to come and live with us, to dwell with us. Even as we consider the birth of Jesus, one of the names that belong to Jesus is Emmanuel, right? I mean, we sing about it and we read about it in the gospel uh, the Gospels, and, and the meaning of Emmanuel is God with us. As a matter of fact, the Gospel tells us, God with us. So this idea that God comes to dwell with us is an amazing thought. Um, he has to come to us because there is no way apart from Him that we could go to Him. He has to come to us. And that is a reflection of His love and of His grace and His mercy. And so all the way back throughout the Bible, you can see this idea that God has come down and is present. I mean, we could talk about how God was walking through the Garden of Eden, right? And after Adam and Eve had sinned, they heard God coming again. And what did they do? They went and they hid themselves. Uh, So starting from there, you have all these different instances where God comes down and he shows himself to his people. We could talk about the burning bush and Mount Sinai. We could talk about Jacob and Jacob's ladder. We could talk about the the commander-in-chief of the heavenly armies that wrestles with Jacob. And we could just keep on going all the way through. God with us. So here, even here it says, these come out of the tribulation, they're before the throne, and it says that God will dwell with them. So that's a great truth there. Verse 16, there is no hunger or thirst. And the first thought that comes to mind, well, you know, in my new rejuvenated, resurrected body, I'm not going to need to eat or drink. And that might be true. But it says here that in verse uh, 17, 
So verse 16 says, They shall neither hunger nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For, or because, the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. So uh, we might not thirst anymore, and yet he leads us to these living fountains of water for some kind of maybe spiritual um, nourishment that he provides for us. So whether we're never going to hunger or thirst or whether we have uh, our needs, whatever they might be, provided for, for by Jesus, we see that uh, he will take care of us. He, is our, he will be our shepherd. He will take care of us throughout all of eternity. And so that's another great thing that we can look forward to. And then, of course, the last verse there, the last phrase, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So no more sorrow or sadness, uh, no more things that cause us to uh, fall down and cry before him. That'll all be gone. All right, so that is uh, the tribulation in the book of Revelation, the last occurrence of the, the word tribulation in the book. We come now to, uh, I want to look a little bit closer on, on this, and, and uh, here it says, uh, well, I want to look at the nature of this tribulation. So in verse 14 again, let me bring up the verse. In verse 14 again, it says, I said to him, sir, you know, you know who they are. He said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white, of the, white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, they're coming out of the great tribulation, and this is why I say that they're martyrs. They're, they're not taken away from it prior to it. They're coming out of it, and uh, the presumption is that they have died during that time, and that's why they're there before the throne. So... Uh, we see that one of the characteristics of this uh, period is death. Another characteristic of this period, and here we're going out of the book of Revelation, we're going back to Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 and 22, because here in this passage we have Jesus identifying this time of trouble which is called the Great Tribulation. It's the only other passage outside of the book of Revelation that refers to a I mean, call, that calls it that, a great tribulation. So in Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 and 22, it says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would survive, would, would be saved. Sorry, For the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So what we see then is that the tribulation is characterized by two things, death and intense suffering. The suffering is so intense that if it were allowed to continue, nobody would survive. But because of the elect's sake, he will shorten those days. Now, just to give us a little bit of an insight here, the clue there's a clue that the elect are present during those days, and it is because of their presence that those days are shortened. So just to kind of point that out uh, uh, here. So we have this, uh, two things, death and intense suffering, as the nature of this tribulation. All right, any questions so far? Because now we're coming to the most controversial part of the whole thing, the timing of the tribulation. When does this tribulation 
this great tribulation take place. So before I go into that, does anybody have any questions or comments? All right, well, let's keep on going. Now, timing out all of the events of the end times is probably the most difficult uh, challenge that exists when trying to figure out. Uh, Not only is it difficult to understand what the symbols and the events and the creatures, what that all means, but it's, it's also difficult to comprehend when it's all going to happen. And this is when we're talking about timelines and uh, how the events unfold. And I tell you what, it is so, it can get so confusing. You can read one person and they'll say one thing and another person, they'll say another thing and Um, You know, they go through all of this trying to understand the events of the end and how it unfolds. And I just want to give you an example of how challenging this can be, okay? So here it is. We're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 38 first. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ezekiel chapter 38. And in Ezekiel, we have this prophecy concerning Gog and Magog. How many of you ever have ever heard of Gog and Magog, those two words? All right, a bunch of you. See, look at that. We all, know, we all know about Gog and Magog, even though it only occurs in the Bible a couple of times. But because it's so entrenched in end times talk, we are familiar with it, Gog and Magog. So in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 we see these prophecies concerning Gog and Magog. So let me just read a portion of the prophecies. First, I'm going to read chapter 38, verses 1 through 8. So this is Ezekiel 38, verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog and the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against them and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all its troops, and the house of Togermah, from the far north and all its troops. Many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be visited. In the latter years you will come into the land of those who those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely." And so it keeps on going, and you can read that. Let's drop down to verses 14 through 16. It says, Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says says the Lord, On that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land, It will be in the latter days, notice the reference here, to the latter days, that I will bring you against my land so the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. 
Verse 18, and it will come to pass at that the same time when Gog comes against that, the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. Drop down to chapter 39, verses 1 through 5. It says, And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bring, and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. So this is a pretty extensive prophecy concerning the latter days, which is what it tells us. And this is how the explanation of these prophecies go. So if you look at Gog and Magog and some of these other places that are identified, then you can look on the map and through history of how the people spread over the land, and you can see that this is probably in the area of Russia. And so during the end times, what's going to happen is you have this coalition of uh, Russia and some other places. It mentions Ethiopia and a couple of other nations that we're more familiar with. They will come down and they will attack Israel, probably under the, the inspiration or the moving of the Antichrist. So he will move in these armies from Russia. He will bring them down against Israel. And when they attack Israel, of course, God is with his people. He is going to stand with them and he is going to destroy. There's going to be this great earthquake and he's going to destroy this army. And the blood from their deaths will rise up until the bridle of the horse. Just kind of descriptive of the, the, um, the massive amount of bloodshed from the destruction of these uh, armies from Russia, from the north. So in Revelation chapter 14, verse 20 says, And the winepress, that's the winepress of the wrath of God, was trampled outside the city, and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. So it's almost like it creates this lake of blood. Isn't that gross and disgusting? Now, the question is, well, when is this going to happen? When is this, uh, rush, this army of Russian you know, allegiance and this Russian coalition, when is that going to come down and attack Israel? So let me read this interpretation, this uh, commentary. I don't know if you've ever heard of John Walvoord. Well, he's, he's one of the main proponents of this, um, of the popular view of the end times. So this is what he says in his, well, not him, but some other, he's the editor of the, of, uh, the volume. And uh, this is what it says in that volume edited by John Walburn. It says, It seems best to place Ezekiel's battle of Gog and Magog in the tribulation period. Other internal markers indicate that it should be placed in the first three and a half years of the seven-year period. The attack will come when Israel is at peace. Ezekiel 38, 8 and 11. When Israel's covenant with the Antichrist is in effect at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, Daniel 9, 27. She will be at peace. But after the covenant is broken at the middle of the seven-year period, the nation will suffer tremendous persecution. 
This will provide the time needed to bury the dead and to burn the weapons of war. So the battle described in described by Ezekiel, may take place sometime during the first three and a half years of the seven-year period before Christ's second coming. Possibly the battle will occur just before the midpoint of the seven-year period. Now, whenever you read anything on Ezekiel's prophecy of Gog and Magog, this is kind of where you end up. But this is where we have to be really, really careful of taking all of these prophecies and putting them into Revelation. What we want to do is go to Revelation and then, and then kind of use that to guide us. Why? Because, and this is the most puzzling of all end times prophecies and explanations that I have experienced. So turn with me to Revelation 20 and I'll explain why. As we go to Revelation 20, we have this amazing reference to Gog and Magog. And it's the only other place in the Bible which tells us about Gog and Magog. And, and uh, I don't know, you might be shocked. I know when I first saw it, I was shocked. But notice what it says, beginning in verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, what thousand years are we talking about? All right, I am, a, I am a millennial person. I believe in a literal 1,000-year period, okay? So when the 1,000 years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Now, you remember, when we're talking about the 1,000 years, Christ has returned, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the dragon have been... Well, the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown in the lake of fire, but the devil, he is bound to wear... In the, in the bottomless pit. All right, so the, drag, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, but the, the devil, he is bound in the bottomless pit. And then Christ reigns for a thousand years on this earth. That's the millennial kingdom. After the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the corners of the earth. Look, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire, and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, even if you believe in a seven-year tribulation period, Gog and Magog and Russia do not attack in the first part of the tribulation period. They attack after the thousand-year period. Now, it only takes, there, there are only a few references to Gog and Magog. It only takes a few moments to look up all of the verses for these two nations, or this Gog might be like a title like Pharaoh, and to discover that it is in Revelation at the end and specifically says that it follows the thousand-year period. Now, why... 
Um, we put it in the seven-year period. I just don't understand that. But that's how it's been kind of shared and reshared and taught and retaught over and over and over again. And that's why, you know, trying to figure out the time of all of this stuff can be very tricky and we have to be careful that we don't take our preconceived ideas and just kind of make things fit into what our, our ideas might be. We want to follow this very carefully, what it tells us. And again, I believe that we should start in Revelation. So there's one thing now that I'm going to leave us with concerning the timing of chapter 7 in Revelation and the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation of Revelation chapter 7 occurs in the flow of Revelation after the sixth seal has been opened and before the seventh seal has been opened. If we take what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, we might be able to shift this. Now, since in Revelation 7, they're already dead and they're already in heaven. They've already come out of the great tribulation. So if we put this with Matthew chapter 24, we might be able to shift the great tribulation period to just before the sixth seal and after the fifth seal. That is the way that it is explained to us, and that is the time frame that is given to us in the book of Revelation. So I'm going to leave you with that thought, and uh, you can go back and just kind of look at it. And what we're going to do next time, I've got this uh, nifty chart up here comparing Revelation, um, the six seals of Revelation and Matthew chapter 24. And that's what we're going to start with next time. Uh, trying to figure out the timing of this great tribulation.